नमस्ते सिस्टर्स एंड ब्रदर्स फ्रेंड्स फेलो इंडियंस आई बीन आस्ट टू स्पीक ऑन फाउंडेशंस ऑफ इंडियन कल्चर दर्ड कल्चर कम्स फ्रॉम द रूट कल्ट विच हैज ब्यूटिफुल मीनिंग इन लैटिन इट मीन्स टू ग्रो जस्ट हैज इन द वर्ल्ड एग्रीकल्चर एंड देर फोर इट्स नेसेसरी फॉर एस टू नो what seeds and roots lie buried in the soil of our consciousness so that we can cultivate it rightly reap the full harvest and enjoy the fruits and flowers of long centuries millenniums of labor that those who have passed before us have put into this wonderful soil that we know today as mother india yes i am proud to be to belong to a nation which gave some beautiful remarkable truths which still can save humanity and in the course of this 45 minutes or in our lecture i'll be sharing some of these truths we can then see for ourselves how valid they are for today for tomorrow as much as they were valid yesterday so the beauty of indian culture indian thought is that it was built from within outwards it was not like there was a nation which suddenly got free as we understand today and then we started developing upon it and the reason why indian civilization has actually survived not just centuries but even before that if we go back to the times of the mahabharata even then there were invasions and it has survived centuries at least of invasions is because it built itself on a very mighty edifice of something which is best known today as sanatan dharma now sanatan dharma crudely translated as eternal religion the word religion has different connotation than the word dharma means but basically it means that it's built upon certain universal truths of life a mighty law of life that's what the seers discovered they were not in search of a religion they were not in search of numbers to convert people but they were in search of truth and it is these truths which led them to where they were they they could go at the farthest end and then they understood this truth from various angles there's something very beautiful about indian thought that doesn't it's not happy exploring truth from one angle but from multiple angles and all that truths they discovered they left it in a body of literature we know today as the vedas vedas means knowledge secret knowledge similarly the upanishads called out from the vedas they mean the knowledge which belongs to the inner being the secret knowledge which is hidden inside and this knowledge has the power to liberate us as uh, madam was uh, mentioning from ignorance from bondage to give us true freedom who doesn't want freedom we all want freedom but freedom doesn't come just by saying i'm a free person because even when we say we are free we still continue to be slaves of our thoughts ideas opinions viewpoints ideologies religions of the milieu we live in environment society our own understanding about life our desires our impulses our emotions and a whole lot of things we don't realize that we are bound terribly bound and this knowledge liberates us ya vidya cha vimukta it liberates us from all these bondages so this knowledge is of eternal and perennial importance so 
I'll just quickly speak of some of these truths which are the discoveries of the scientists of the soul in far back times but because the soul is the imperishable element they are as valid today as they were yesterday and the first discovery they made let me assure this is a very very scientific discovery in the sense that we don't have to believe in these things we can try it out in our life and rediscover them so it's science in that sense only the field is different but they are recoverable in the consciousness of man just as they were yesterday so in that sense they are science based on observations based on discoveries based on replication of result down the millenniums uh, till today's times you know as uh, you know we are celebrating shirobindo's 150th year right up to shirobindo who has you know once again replicated and countless other saints and sages and even taking it further so the other aspect of this uh, mighty edifice is that it allows us the freedom to explore once the edifice is built so indian culture is not about certain fixed customs rituals etc that's the most external part it's like i may wear a sari of a certain color or i may wear it of a different color i may sport a mark or may not sport a mark that's not the relevant part but the edifice is within so it spread from within outwards and when it comes to from within outward then you can go any number of the progress can be you know the discovery yet continues so that was the beauty of eternal religion that it not put it did not put a stop point a full stop a period to its discoveries it it's like a uh, we can go as further as we want to the limits of our consciousness because it is infinite we can equally go as further outward to express it and manifest it in number of ways to take a little story from one of the puranas that once uh, uh, brahma and vishnu they uh, they want to discover who is their origin origin what is their origin because this is the beauty of indian thought right goes up to the origin where is the origin it goes beyond time this itself is so liberating that we don't belong to a particular uh, ideology or to a religion or to a state or to a language but we belong to that origin which is the origin of all mankind all creation in fact so uh, the divine manifests himself as a column of light and he says okay uh, one of you go up and one of you go down and whoever comes first um after discovering the end point will be regarded as the the winner and will be the first one to be worshiped and they both travel up and down and everywhere and yet they cannot uh, discover the end point of this column of light meaning thereby that basically truth is infinite and this is the first discovery that because truth is one yet infinite so though it is one it expresses itself in number of ways in multiple ways so the first of these discoveries is ekamevidvityam there is one without a second they didn't choose to name it for a particular reason but you can call it with any name ekam sadvipra bahuda vadanti the same person who is sitting here is a speaker is also a husband he is also a father i'm also son to somebody i'm a friend and so many things uh, at the same time so too the divine can be approached from multiple angles and from that angle we can have our own unique relation with the divine so while this is one without a second yet there are many approaches and depending on the approach we can form a certain kind of relation with this reality which is beyond name and form so we can form the relation with this reality of a father we can form a relation with this reality of a of a lover and beloved 
of a master, of a teacher, of a leader of mankind. And also we can say that he is beyond all relations. He is the absolute, he is impersonal, he is universal. And beyond that, he is the supreme personality. So all this multiplicity of approaches, this wide Catholicity is it in, built in the system of Indian culture. It accepts all streams that approach God and you'll be surprised that including atheism and agnosticism, even they find a place in this uh, vast body of. But the only condition was that it should be a seeking for truth. If there is a seeking for truth, that's all that is required. And let us make our own discoveries and uh, they have given us a way and approach, but we can make our own discoveries. So the first great truth is Ekamabhidityam, the one without a second. And, and this itself is a non-dogmatic, non-religious. It's something which transcends religion. It, it, is, it cannot be put into any one single narrow formula, which makes it very vast and very liberating. So its starting point itself is very high. So, uh, Indian thought encourages seeking for truth. It's not just a way of life, as it is often understood. It's that way of life is based on something very fundamental. That fundamental is truth. Satya mevajayate nanditam. And what that truth is, it's not an ideology and belief, but truth that is the stable basis of this entire creation. That which is an imperishable support, that which is the stable, that which scientists are also, you know, trying to figure out what is that last particle, what is that last substratum on which the entire dance of creation is taking place. Is there one or not? On what are space and time established? What impels the mind, the breath, the speech, the actions? These were the great questions which these rishis of uh, your asked and found their answers. This is something very wonderful. As a psychologist, I always used to wonder, is it really the activity of the neurons? It's so silly. Do you not believe that uh, activity of unconscious neurons generates consciousness and thought? So there one finds really the answers. The second beautiful aspect of uh, Indian culture is, it pursued two ideals, two extremes. Unfortunately, only one got popularized in the common mind today. It pursued worldly life to its utmost possibility. And it pursued otherworldly life to, life to its utmost possibility. So we have these two ideals beautifully enshrined in these two very interesting words, Leela and Moksha. So moksha, the one with which we are more familiar, moksha means that ultimately one is free from all the bondages, life is misery, it's suffering and the only way you can do is you can be free from it and moksha was regarded as an ideal. And this moksha was epitomized, it meant initially an inner moksha, the ideal of the jivan mukta. We don't have to run away from life to achieve this mukti, it's a condition of consciousness. And yet this ideal was stressed to an extreme by sannyasis, you know, lost total contact with life, started wandering into forest and, you know, mountains. But that's not the only truth about Indian culture. Indian culture equally encouraged another side of uh, understanding creation that's called Leela. Leela literally means that it is the unfolding of the divine. It's, it's evolutionary through and through. Leela literally means the divine is unfolding himself through time and space, in form and through various forms of manifestation. And this unfolding has a direction and a purpose. So in Indian thought, there is no antagonism between evolution and intelligent design. The two are harmonized. So when we look at the story of Dashavatar, as uh, you know, recall, uh, as we find written in the Vishnu Puran as well as Srimad Bhagavat Puran, we see that if you just notice the ten avatars, 
they are at once an evolution of form and an evolution of consciousness thereby uh, creating a connecting link in not only from the animal to man but in different human types which are evolving from the brute to modern civilization and to yet further which is uh, like the far unseen end which the rishis saw so what is this story of ten uh, the parable of the ten avatars we see that the first avatar is fish who is god become fish in the water and the second is tortoise who is on the fish and the land and the third is vara the wild boar on the land who has mastered the land and out of vara comes nursing avatar who is half uh, lion and half human and then comes vamana the dwarf human and then parshurama of the axe who is uh, an extremely rajasic man extremely mighty like a kshatriya who destroys anything that he finds is evil or wicked but then that's that's not the ideal so there comes rama the man who has satvik illumined reason who wants to establish a society based on equity of justice and probity and then goes still beyond we have buddha we have krishna who go beyond the limits of mankind to something a state which is still further and then yes the final kalki who establishes the kingdom of heaven upon earth so we see this scheme which is so beautiful shubindra includes in this scheme of avatars christ because you know he also tries to bring down the kingdom of heaven upon earth so we see something very interesting that there is a story of evolution now evolution itself is manifestation the seed of the divine consciousness is buried in matter and through matter as a condition it's evolving just as when we bury the seed within the soil it evolves through um a whole lot of processes first stage is misery suffering darkness and the second stage is it bursts open to the light and within the seed are concealed the plant the tree the flowers and the fruits so this seed they discovered and this these are the truths that we are speaking of so how does this unfolding take place is it just a wild and folding uh, any which way or there is a logic and a law behind it so the logic and the law of unfolding and we can become a participant to it incidentally is what is called as dharma so dharma there is no word which can be really there are two words in indian thought which have no parallel one is dharma and second paradoxically arya arya was never about northerners versus southerners or about a racial type arya was a type of humanity and the arya could be anywhere in this world the noble the shresth one who is striving towards perfection later on of course i know all these theories that came in to create all kinds of division but arya word has no parallel similarly dharma arya is a very ancient word by the way even before it started in india we find its roots in uh, iran we find its roots in uh, russia we find its roots in greek literature so another word which is very very amazing is dharma so dharma is not about a religion that's how it is unfortunately today used dharma means it comes from the root dhra that which holds meaning thereby we need to discover what holds us now just imagine if i believe that my body holds me what will be my natural outcome of my way of life i will live only for the bodily life to enjoy to have pleasure to you know uh, maybe observe some healthy Uh, lifestyle so that my body can be healthy but at the end of the day why would i care for anybody even the next door neighbor if body is all so is my body the the that which holds me no said indian thought this revealed in a very beautiful par- parable next does the life force hold me 
my life of desires enjoyments and all is that what holds me is that the core of my existence if i say yes i'll go down the way that many modern so called civilized nations have gone where we do everything we create everything for the sake of the bodily life and the vital enjoyment but we become hollow inside is mind myself is my thought my ideology my opinion myself then we will end up in a state of perpetual division because we know that there is always this division in the mind between one viewpoint and another viewpoint and a third viewpoint and a fourth viewpoint and the way people debate on television is a sight to be seen it's quite an amusement to see so it was not satisfied with that it wanted a still greater reconciling truth and that's what it called as the spiritual truth the divine reality so what holds me is something like an unchanging imperishable existence it's one in all beings by its very nature there is no special uh, religion or a human being however fallen or however great he may be why human being even animals birds plants stone everything that one existence is everywhere and that is why in indian thought we have so many conception of so many gods even a stone you can pick up and make a god it's not about as people understand we you know indians worship gods and rivers yes of course because you know there is a courage to see the god everywhere to see the one divine everywhere it's not just a lip service that god is everywhere it can be translated into practice literally we can one can pick up a grain of dust you know sand and you see some of these mystics have had this experience when william blake says uh, hold eternity uh, in a grain of sand what does he mean he has touched that bedrock of indian thought and culture that look even in a grain of sand the divine dwells that's why even sand is sacred stone is sacred the sense of sacredness that pervades throughout indian culture is precisely because it sees the divine expressing itself uh, in so many ways uh, from the dust below our feet to the quasar the star the galaxies to bird and beast and stone and man and rivers and mountains and everywhere so this vision of divine everywhere is something fantastic but it it was not satisfied with that it was not that okay fine we worship these things and we find some deeper reality it went still further it a thought which is so amazing it did not cut world with god so in the conception of leela you don't cut world with god so what does it say it says god is within us this idea of the immanent divine is something so amazing so liberating where do you find god which uh, temple you have to go you don't have to go any any temple he is he has already built temples and abodes for himself the first temple of god is atom that means we must respect material things not because you know they are useless or uh, we will get attached but because god dwells in them that's how we see indian civilizations in uh, good old days how much they respected matter and no wonder they discovered some fantastic things out of matter itself then where is the second temple is the universe is the temple where is the third temple earth is the temple if you just follow this principle we don't have to teach not to pollute don't throw plastics all this is not necessary just ingrain this idea that earth is a living reality and that is enough to worship mother earth where is the fourth temple in every creature but the best temple the most important temple where the creation can directly meet the creator something very amazing is within man the immanent divine so from there came up this whole idea that we can meet god and it it is enshrined in one of the greatest formula ever uttered for mankind so hamasmi i am that 
that divine who is there and that divine who is here it's the same the word used in indian culture in in ancient sanskrit is the same for purusha the divine being and purusha the the human being there the same word is used because we are made in the image of god what does it mean made in the image of god we are meant to become one with the godhead that dwells within us so the whole purpose of leela was through a process of complex unfolding through all the ups and downs through misery and pain as much as through happiness and joy through wars as well as you know ages of peace ultimately we have to realize that state where we become one with the godhead within that's what the whole struggle and conflict is so in indian thought we have this importance of the devasur sangram the devas and asuras they are not racial types again the deva is within us and the asura is within us asura is all those tendencies as the geeta says which create a selfish life which create a life of false pride vanity arrogance life of desires and devic life is that life which is full of teja where we we like to concentrate our energies and turn it towards useful purposes so that's a life of tapa there, there is a life of sayama shama where we shama to forgive all these are aspects of the devas and of course they are also personified gods and there is a reason uh, indian thought never created this bridge uh, you know this antagonism between the form and the formless every form was an aspect of the formless formless expressed himself through form and it is so true even of matter it is as much true every material object can be resolved into a state of energy and then still further into a formless state of consciousness so they were not seen as antagonistic but form was meant to manifest the formless truth and the whole story of evolution of yoga and philosophy was how we can assist this process so this was so that which helps us to grow and manifest that truth which is within us was dharma so dharma was not defined by a certain set of do's and don'ts do's and don'ts evolve from that and for each because human beings go through different stages of life and different human beings are in different stages of life the whole idea of rebirth was to allow that great to allow continuity in this journey so we all through you know there is an imperishable indestructible element the soul the spiritual element it goes from life to life and grows through that process because obviously one life is a very uh, limited term at the same time in one life you can have uh, you know you're already starting with not at ground zero but at who knows minus 1 or plus 1 or minus 10 or plus 10 so it's an unfair game so there is a whole series of lives through which all of us evolve and uh, right from matter itself and through that process of evolution we reach a point where we can start manifesting the hidden godhead so the revered ones in india were not those who were uh, you know having lot of wealth and position and outer prestige but those who had come closest to god who were close to realizing the divine so in india always the seers the saints they are revered not because they you know had an institution but simply because they are closer to god a realized person is always revered uh, more than anything else even more than the scripture and then after that those who were guardians of society the kings who were always meant to act under subordination to the seers the rishis who knew the truth so dharma was that which helps us in coming closer to truth and for each man there was a dharma 
for each person because depending on his constitution his occupation uh, you know his unique peculiar way of life he could adopt a certain dharma and evolve through that so dharma was a very wide and flexible term but not flexible in the sense anybody could do anything but its essence was that which helps us to evolve and grow into the godhead who is hidden within us that is dharma because that godhead holds our life is that godhead is manifesting himself it comes from the root dharma comes from dra to hold so from that comes dharti dharani so it's uh, again uh, we can't speak about indian culture without speaking of two languages sanskrit and tamil which are the ancient with the same common root look how it is united shivas as the story goes they Amazing way of uniting it. With the right side, when he played the dumbru, Sanskrit came. With the left side, when he played the dumbru, Tamil came. There is no antagonism. And if we go back to the root, Shirobindo, who did lot of research, he is a master linguist, master thirty-two languages, which includes Greek, Latin, French, Spanish, Italian. He could write poetry in that. He discovered the roots of the commonality between Tamil and Sanskrit. Through ancient Sanskrit, through certain common roots which he found in other languages, even in Latin language. So, when we go back to this origin, what do we discover? We discover humanity is one because in every one there is the one divine essence. Today we are talking so much about unity, the problem of division, because we have cut humanity from its roots, and suddenly said, "Your origin is here." at a point of time but our origin is timeless; it's eternal. How can we fight? We have we are all children who are in a play field. so when mother was asked how can humanity become one she said very simply one word by becoming conscious of its origin so we see this concept of dharma which is very uh, amazing and unique then the um, uh, there is a third aspect of dharma one is that which holds the eternal reality and then the process of manifestation and our actions our thoughts and then in the most outward conduct so because indian mind tries to work in details uh it may one may find it very difficult to understand because today the india that we see has been so too much under uh, different foreign domination so we have forgotten what indian mind really is but now it is bouncing back extensive creative arts look at any of the temples anywhere especially in the southern parts look at you know minakshi madurai look at konark temple in odisha far odisha uh, look at tanjavur temple and what one is amazed with is the details look at the minute architecture the way it is built it's amazing that how they could conceive compare it with most of the places in the world even very good you know high rising buildings skyscrapers etc so plank compared to these this kind of architecture so in details so it tried to bring out this inner truth at a third level in all the outer conduct and outer affairs of life so thereby everything started becoming sacred and a sacredosy so marriage was not a legal thing marriage was a sacredosy so you know when people got married they were supposed to be united now it's a different thing we have lost all that and that's why perhaps there is a need to understand these beautiful roots i remember in my own marriage somebody said okay okay we'll do the havan and uh, very rightfully my uh, partner and as well as you know some of my people they said no 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 we want a proper these mantras are so beautiful and for the first time i heard the mantras that are chanted during marriage and i realized this is the ideal of a relationship 
it's relationship is not about just tying a wedding knot and you know um, signing a register or saying before god that you know we love each other and henceforth we'll be with each other it's something so sacred and beautiful look at the ritual three times the man will be in front four times the wife will be in front what does it mean it's like it's not it's about equality in the deepest sense who is you know very often we hear about equality in uh, in women much before the movement of feminism had started in the world where women were oppressed all over the world that's a very unfortunate part of world history not just about one and in some parts of the world they are still very much oppressed but in india way back the whole feminism started with the ideal of durga who is a woman she is shakti without him shiva is lifeless he is lying below his feet her feet and that's how when we look at the origin of creation itself it's by the shakti that this creation comes there are beautiful stories in the rigvedas that say that when shakti went away from brahman the lord the brahman felt that he is powerless so the true feminism that we find in india its seeds are spiritual feminism oh women do not become like man that doesn't make you equal realize your own power within your own shakti even man if he has to become truly full of virious strength courage nobility wisdom he must realize the shakti which is lying within the kundalini shakti he must discover the shakti which is within him so without shakti this creation anything is lifeless so this was the tribute and worship it gave to uh, a women in in the scriptures what we do today is a different matter uh, but still in india i must say compared to many other places this understanding is there Uh, so much so that one of the tantras says so interestingly swami vivekananda quotes it to worship all women is true tantra can we just imagine so when the wife came to the house she was supposed to be lakshmi coming to the house supposed to be respected like that when children were born it was something sacred because everything was a sacred dossier so when the child was taken in the hand of the the first person who took the child in hand it was supposed to utter the mantra om not and what is om om is the most <laughs> secular if you want to put it spiritual symbol and it is used by certain religions by reversing it upside down by side twisting it it's the original sound just imagine it's not even a being not even a state it's the sound from which creation started meaning thereby all creation starts with this sound which yogis discovered in their inner meditation that when they went back all creation can be resolved into sounds and lights this is pure physics but where does the first light first photon first ray and where is the origin of the first sound so when they went through that they discovered the original nad the swar it can be only realized by going within because we carry the source within us so when they discovered they said oh this is the sound now it's not that om the way we utter or people try to utter but at least they try to bring it so that's why everything starts with om because the creation starts with om and very often we will see everything ends with swaha offering who is swaha swaha is the power of agni she is the consort of agni so when we do this act of swaha what does it mean it means that whatever tendency i have made be purified by the fire within where is that fire fire is the fire of aspiration of seeking and that fire purifies all things because that seeking itself 
cures me of many many aspects and instead of giving people a rule of living much easier to tell them that look your life doesn't stop here you have to keep going further and further all renunciation was for a greater delight because indian thought de- declared that uh, who is god at least in two three upanishads it says he is delight he is rasovesa so why should we renounce renunciation was always internal tyaga not sanyasa so that we can enter into a greater upgrade the capacity of joy within us till we touch delight which is completely free of all outer conditions what a beautiful phrase you know the very first phrase of ishavasya upanishad gives us ishavasyam idam sarvam it gives a principle of life all this is meant for the habitation of the lord so how i should deal with people as a trustee they are none else but god who has come to us and yes i may wrestle with them if necessary but i'll not hate them why because they are all meant for the habitation of the lord ishavasyamit idam sarvam yat kinche jagatyam jagat tena taktena bunjita therefore by renouncing inwardly we can really enter into a state of beatific delight we won't even need to possess anything because we ignorantly believe if i have this i will become uh, you know happy but happiness is should be a natural state of a human being if we renounce this idea that by this or that i'll get happy we'll discover that delight tena taktena bunjita magrida kasasuddhana so we won't need to run after somebody else's money somebody else's wealth possessions but whatever comes to us we'll receive it as a gift of god and when it goes from us we equally take it as it has gone into the sum total of uh, you know creation so the other element which came Uh, along with this thought of dharma was yagya yagya was to purify to refine every tendency speech must become a yagya so there was yagya of walk normally it is so crude our sounds are crude our intonation is crude our um, thought is crude can this thought a speech be refined 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 through yagya yagya means to let it pass through the fire of aspiration i want something more beautiful more refined that's how indian language swara music all originated we reach that ultimate degree of refinement possible which comes through contact with the deep reality and that reality is the same pursue through music you will touch it pursue through science you will touch it pursue through geography and history you will touch it that's the interesting part pursue through pure a- analyzing of material existence as a material scientist at some point you will touch that reality because it's everywhere in everything and that's like that's how we are discovering different states of matter when we were children we heard about three states of matter then we learned now about four states of matter we say, oh there is a refined state of matter then today we speak about five states of matter seven states of matter till we ultimately discover the final padarth which is there in indian thought how they discovered padarth simply by discovering that one unity which is within everything so every aspect every gesture of life bowing down to elders not elders uh, frankly speaking but to those whom we revere really who have the knowledge is a sign that i am humble so even a person who may be a very knowledgeable person outwardly yet bows down at the feet of a saint or a seer why because even a king bows down at the feet of a saint or a seer why because it's a sign of humility whatever my knowledge may be still there is something still greater like the tikabana artist in uh, japan you know leave a little caesar that somebody else can perfect it so this humility inbuilt within the culture this uh, namaste 
What is Namaste? We don't say hi, we don't say good morning. We say this Namaste. Why we do this hand? It's something so amazing. Sometimes we do it here. See the seat of the cell. Where is it here? Ask any person. Who are you? He'll, if he has to use a gesture, he'll say this. He won't say, touch his hand and say, I am this. Then, you know, we'll think he is fit for the asylum. Nor will he beat his stomach and say, I am this. We'll think he is too crude and vulgar. But if you say this, I am Mr. So-and-so, if you have to make a gesture. Because instinctively and intuitively, we know that the divine presence is here, in the heart of every creature. And then, Namaste. I bow down to the divine in you, Asti, to the presence inside you. What a wonderful way of life. So in everything from birth till death, the whole affairs of life we are conducted with the sense of the sacred, with the sense of the divine presence. That we have lost it, yes, it's a pity. Still it is there and I am glad that now there is a need to discover because the whole file has been corrupted. Now we understand with Indian thought there are the gods worshipping of plant and stone but we have never saw it with this eye that this is a highly catholic way of living that everything is God why not stone why not house when we enter a house there is Graha Pravesh everything is God God dwells in everything the house is meant as a dwelling place for the God and then to respect the other aspect of Indian life was the stages of life so we had the first stage when a child goes to student so during the student phase what was important Brahmacharya Ashram Brahmacharya literally means you learn to gather and concentrate your energies and turn them upward for a higher purpose. It was not to prepare children to, you know, just pass exams and take a good job and earn a fat salary. So it was regarded as the Brahmacharya Ashram. When children were taught ways and means by which they could learn to conserve energy and instead of wasting and throwing it, turn it towards higher and higher purposes and deeper and deeper ways of living. They were taught the whole science of life in a holistic way. Not just as we, in fact we don't even have psychology in a way thankfully because modern psychology is all rot. I can say that uh, being a psychologist. But, and uh, that is something which needs to be taught. The science of living. How we should live. We are not taught that. So Gurukuls used to teach them science of living, how to draw energy, what, you know every aspect of life. And then one entered into the Grahastashram. So in Grihastha Ashram, again dharma, at every stage dharma was required. So dharma, artha, kama, moksha. So first, in, during the first phase of life, they understood what dharma is. Next phase, Grihastha Ashram, artha, kama. So you expand life of desire because they understood that it's a natural way of life through which we grow. So it was not like a monastic life, which is the ordinary life. Ordinary life itself was a preparation for something greater. There was a continuity in life. So when we are a grahastha, we are naturally earning money, we are expanding desires and through all this we were preparing ourselves through all the experiences for something greater. So this little existence when we lead with dharma eventually opens a door towards a still greater existence. So the next stage was uh, Vanaprastasham where we start gathering deeper knowledge higher knowledge transcendental knowledge that behind this existence there is something greater because we have gone through that phase and then finally it was the moksha where one becomes freed from the bonds of ignorance so it respected the different stages of human life and how much misery could we avoid it if even today the elders understand that now we have to pass the baton to the younger generation in Indian thought, it was inbuilt, ingrained. 
so these are some of the things but the most important fundamental thing about indian thought is one the spiritual aim and the conception of man nowhere we discover this conception of man that man is not a fallen being but man is essentially divine you see when swami vivekananda started his chicago chicago speech he started with these words that brothers and sisters of america i am so happy and i am proud to belong to a religion which has uh, declared that man is essentially divine within him there is the divine nature deep within that's how swadharma and all these things come there is the divine nature within us so all our life is to basically discover and uncover this divine nature which is within something so beautiful the concept of man itself is something powerful and yes finally the master key of indian thought and culture is spirituality every little thing will have some kind of connect with a vaster deeper higher consciousness what is spirituality spirituality is not other worldliness non material states as it is often de- defined there are many non material things which are not spiritual occult for example guhya vidya which was uh, different from adhyatma vidya and brahma vidya spirituality is things of the spirit that which is the origin of things when we discover it through whatever means in whatever way that is spirituality and why should we discover it not to vanish into the ineffable but to bring that spirit back into our life and transform our individual and collective existence this is something what shobindo you know beautifully reveals because just as we have different stages of life and different grades of existence so also there are grades of world today we speak about string theory and the super string theory so in indian thought material world was only one of the many worlds there was behind it a prana lok the vital world beyond it the manomaya lok the mental world beyond still the vigyanmay world the supramental and the more we ascend the greater forces powers and wisdom we can bring to make our life more and more perfect it's the same thing like when man went into space he just in going to an empty area he brought the possibility of the internet and rapid communication today so same way the more we ascend in our consciousness discover these greater and higher worlds the greater the possibility of expressing perfecting and fulfilling our life so the grand aim of indian thought was not world negation but world fulfillment not self denial self denial of the lower self was necessary for the fulfillment of the greater self within us self denial itself become, became a means of a greater self finding and self fulfillment i think with these words i'll close if i don't know if there is a question we can take otherwise we can meet tomorrow namaste so thank you uh, sir for this wonderful lecture which is holistic and uh, covering the diverse aspects of the emotional the physical the social the spiritual and the empirical dimensions of human life the goals the techniques and uh, the methods that were adopted by our ancients through their insight into uh, these <coughs> into these areas and so uh, uh as you know because you have had a wide experience 
both in the army as well as uh, you have been treating patients so this inner awareness that is life transforming uh, that is uh, very vital because evolution takes place in and through consciousness so all of us are at different uh, different levels of uh, our uh, emotional uh, evolution which will ultimately culminate in the realization of the self so you have uh, given us uh, these um, this uh, analysis of life the stages the techniques all that and then uh, uh, i now keep the session open for a discussion if you want to ask any questions any clarifications for 5 10 minutes because uh, sir is a very busy person and uh, so you may ask questions the session is open for discussion Good morning, sir. Good morning to you. Uh, I'm Dr. Jonas from Asian Christian Studies from Pondicherry University. Glad to greet you, sir. Namaste, Vikas Sajjanabha. Yes. <laughs> After listening to your lecture, uh, it was a very beautiful statement that you made about uh, the origin of feministic theory long back in India. Many do not know it. Actually, it's a very sad thing. And how is it possible if India was the origin of uh, feministic uh, rather equality of gender when did we actually indian started oppressing the the better half is there yes. a possibility would you please say something about that sir yes sir so uh, this is very interesting uh, as a question because at least till the itihasas uh, we do find uh, a, you know that women were in all the different fields of life they were organizers warriors they were administrators kings countless examples like the vedas itself 30% of the vedic hymns are written, written by women who were rishikas so they were ever respected in every area uh, now uh, there are countless stories but not going into that when did it start now if i look at some of the uh, areas where women are oppressed let's take in india itself it's something very interesting that if we just look at india in the western part of india uh, you will see all these uh, traditions where you know women started covering themselves there was gungad there was even sati which uh, originally it meant something else but obviously a horrifying thing to uh, you know uh, die on the pyre Uh, and women should stay inside the house the, you will see i have gone to all the states of india so you know i have studied this phenomena very interestingly uh, both being in air force and of course as speaker if you go to the far east where i was posted uh, jorhat and manipur you will see it's a matriarchal society it's very interesting that women have the upper hand bengal and onwards there so basically as i um, whatever studies that i did uh, it was the western frontier where there was so much operation oppression and the invasion which took place now this led to a, a different responses in different part the far east was hardly touched by that kind of invasion so it continued to be matriarchal and it prospered in its own way in that way it has its own issues and not to discuss that but in the western areas especially we'll see in 
the provinces of Haryana and Rajasthan, there is an extreme degree of operation in this sense, uh, not any active operation today, but we see the parda and women should be inside the house. And with that came up all the ills and evils uh, at every level. If we go down south, there is a great degree of freedom. But I suppose what happened in the south was also because all these invasions were taking place and India is one unit. Probably, you know, uh, to preserve the culture, whatever way it was understood became a very strong necessity. So that's how I see these different uh, parts of India where, um, I mean, they were not just physical invasion, but especially the Islamic invasion. It did uh, disturb the balance. We see in Kashmir again, uh, now, you know, we have this movie. So in Kashmir again, we see such a holistic culture was there. There was, um, uh, you know, Vedanta, there was Tantra, there was... Uh, Sikhism, there was both the thought, there was Christianity, Jewism, all flourishing very beautifully under one single place. And if you look at the culture, there is so much of um, liberal thought which was there in the uh, olden Kashmir. But again, post-invasions, exodus, so I suppose it's a result of that. Uh, that's how I look at it. And because it's a long history, almost seven, eight hundred years. But if you look at even the time of King Ashoka, the, we know whom she fought against, the Queen of Kalinga. So, you know, they were warriors, princes. Manipur, if we go, warrior princes, Arjuna has to fight a battle. So, this came, my own feeling is post-invasion, number one. Second is that we lost contact with our own cultural roots. And an alternative narrative of history came up, you know, which where the entire understanding of Indian culture has been twisted upside down. So today, because of a kind of another thought which has come, and I don't want to label it because labeling is never a good thing to do, but today's youth, they don't know what really is there in Indian culture. So they just follow, even feminism that they follow is not spiritual feminism. But uh, simply what is called a gender equality, which is not enough. The woman must wake up to her own power, which is far ahead. Gender equality is important. That's uh, an automatic thing. It's a baseline, not the highest line. That's how I look at it. Yes. Thank you, sir. It's very clear. Thank you. Appreciate that.